1: This is about the good things in the United States. You remember the United States?
2: How did my father die?
1: A young Jedi named Darth Vader who was a pupil of mine until he turned to evil, helped the Empire hunt down and destroy the Jedi Knights. He betrayed and murdered your father. Now the Jedi are all but extinct. Vader was seduced by the dark side of the Force.
2: Come knock on our door. Come knock
1: on our door. We've been waiting for you. We've been waiting for you. Where the kisses are hers and hers and his. Please come for me too. Jack, please stop it. Jack! Work with me, Janet! Oh, stop it! I can't, I got the music in me. Struck with me, Mama!
2: Everything is intended to project the notion of power. The double S's at the end of the KISS logo are designed to look like lightning bolts. The sound equipment has 40 amplifiers and 150 speakers, more than any other rock band has, which blast out 130 decibels. In technical terms, 130 decibels may be described as loud. This is the Decibel Geek Podcast. With Aaron Camaro and Chris Simpson. You wanted
0: the best, you've got the best. The number one podcast of 1977, the Decibel Geek Podcast. We're number one. If there were podcasts in 1977, Chris, and we did them, I think we'd be number one. Is that why
3: you're wearing bell bottoms and a leisure suit today?
0: Shit, Yeah, man. I'm into it. I'm all into it. All this homework we've been doing is driving me crazy. I am entrenched in the world of 1977.
3: Me too. I got my lightsaber right here. That's it's, awesome. It's big. Yeah, it's you... pulsating.
1: Wait, that's not a lightsaber. <laughs> Never mind.
3: <known. laughs> put that thing away
0: and let's do the show hey man this is pretty awesome because we always love to do these year reviews but it's so much work you know and i see you got big bags under your eyes i'm feeling the same way but we promise every so often to bust one of these out because this is one of those things that we're kind of known for this is one of the things we do really well so we've been told. And so I think it's going to be easy rolling, because when you're talking about 1977, you're talking about a shit ton of great hard rock and classic metal music.
3: Yes. And a lot of cool news and pop culture stuff. It's, yeah. This is one we've looked forward to for a long time. And you heard that familiar music at the beginning. Of course. Of course. The theme from Star Wars, which, and apropos theme for this year because in just a few months we're gonna have a new one
0: heck yeah man i'm so excited for that i can't wait i love star wars that shit changed my life oh me too you know totally it changed a lot of people's lives so 1977 is a great year and it's a great trip back in time because last week we just got back From Bizarro World. And, you know, another thing that's cool about 1977 is it's the year that we got Apple computers. That's right. It's the year that it became a thing. And, you know, without that, without 1977, no iTunes. And without no iTunes, no sweet-ass iTunes reviews. But since it all worked out in our favor, I've got a great one for you to check out right now. And it's simply entitled Awesome Podcast. I like that truth, truth and description. It's five stars and it comes from Ben Leb in Canada. It's short, it's sweet, it's to the point. It says, "I love this podcast." Chris and Aaron are such down to earth guys, and it's a pleasure listening to them. Sante, what does that mean?
3: That's French, French for
0: salute. cheers. Oh, so I figured like salute. I took you know, four
3: years of. of- The French, and uh, I do remember that word. Nice. I like that. I know all the dirty words, too. (laughs) Well, you know you got to learn them first. Yeah, we love our uh, French-speaking Canadian listeners.
0: Heck yeah. We love all our listeners, and we'd love it if you took the time to go onto iTunes and leave us a review, because it really does mean a lot. You know, We like those five-star reviews, just like that one. It can be short and sweet, like this one, or it can be long and epic, however you feel, whatever moves you, as long as you do it and give us those big old five stars, we'll be grateful for it. And if your review is sweet like that one, we will definitely read it on the show.
3: And guys, also, it, it serves another purpose. We use the iTunes reviews for therapy. You save us a lot of money. If we're ever down in the dumps and we need something to bring us up, we read our iTunes reviews. It's iTunes reviews. Oh,
0: totally. It makes me feel so good. I mean, the world could be falling down around me, you know, and I'd just be like, i got to read some iTunes reviews if I'm ever going to turn things around, and it works My every life time. sucks,
3: but it's on a five-star level.
0: <laughs> nice. So these are our people. These are our friends. These are the ones that got the back of the Decibel Geek podcast. You want to help out the Decibel Geek podcast in other ways? Well, there's some honor and prestige that goes right along with that, and that is becoming a geek of the week. And becoming a geek of the week is so simple, but it means so much. All you got to do is go on Twitter, retweet it, Go on Facebook. Share it with your friends. Let your rock and roll people know about the Decibel Geek Podcast. We're a grassroots thing right here, totally. Look at the names on the list of Geeks of the Week this week. There's some sprinkled in there that have been with us since day one. And a lot of those people are our VIPs, you know, and they're getting all kinds of awesome extra stuff to go along with your every week Decibel Geek Podcast. You can, too. You totally can, and you totally should. And I recommend it because everyone tells us, It's funny as hell. That's true. So, So, um, you want to be Geek of the Week? Check it out.
3: Yeah, Geeks of the Week this week, these are the people that shared or retweeted last week's Bizarro Covers, Volume 7 episode. There will be a Volume 8 because it's too much fun. Oh, totally. Yeah. Geeks of the Week this week are Miguel Nunez, Dave Shirt, Mike Stewart, Rockin' Ron Runyon, Joe Ciambelli. Steve True, David Alpazar, Brent Dan Miles, Brent Walter, Kevin Williams, Danny Lewis Kukler, Chad Pollock Baco, Joe Royland, Sit and Spin with Joe, the Cobras and Fire podcast. I was recently on the show on a Three Sides of the Shilling episode. So uh, check that out if you haven't listened yet.
0: Controversy yes. with a K.
3: <laughs> also, uh, Andrew Jacobs, Rob Harris, Wayne Cross, Scott Ollinger, David Glenn, Mark Alden Taylor, James Brendan Dunn, Colin Francis, Brant Cattell, Joey Vanchieri, Casablanca, the band, last week's featured artist shared it. Carl Marcus uh, Gidloff, Paul Watson, Adam Cox, Bill Hale, Ernesto Aguiar, Derek Novak, Pep Pep, J Motown Drummer, Podcast of the Best, Billy Hardcore, Hoops, The Terrence and Mark Experience, Stealth, Rock and Roll GPS, Daniel Lee, Ruben Garcia, and Robin Bennett.
0: There's a lot of names on that list right there that have been, like I said, supporting us from the very beginning. There's some new names we see all the time. Everybody's welcome. This is the Decibel Geek Podcast. We're taking a worldwide music scene and interchanging it somehow with a local music something. How damn it. Every time. Wow. I I finally got up the cojones to try it again. (laughs) It's
3: been so long. We haven't used our tagline in a long time.
0: And we uh, we should never again, apparently.
3: It was uh, building (laughs) a local music scene with a worldwide audience but it's too wordy so as Aaron has proven that's,
0: that's it that's it no more of that this is a rock and roll party you guys are invited to it we are your hosts and we're about to <laughs> rock you some 1977 and the only way that decibel geek starts a year in review is like this Chris give us the facts
3: okay facts for 1977 I worked hard on these average cost of a new house in 1977 $49,300. Wow. Average wow. average income per year 15 grand.
0: See, that's where the difference lies. My
3: Pizza Hut salary back in the day was yeah. more than that. Uh your average monthly rent in 1977 was 240 bucks.
0: Can you imagine? But then again, it's the difference in, in what you make, I guess.
3: That's true. The cost of a gallon of gas, 65 cents. Wow. And without further ado, the number you've all been waiting for, the cost of a pound of bacon was a dollar and ten cents.
0: That cuts it. I'm ready to go back to 1977. And 1977 was a special place, and it was jam-packed full of awesome rock and roll. And if we're going to kick it off today, I can't think of a better place to start than with a Toronto rocker. Yeah, Pat Travers. He's from this, Toronto. Yeah, this guy was massively popular in the U.K. in 76 with his self-titled debut, you know, and although he did move to London to further his career, he was always a proud Canadian. He liked to wear a red and white maple leaf jumpsuit on stage while touring all over the island, you know, so he always represented. You know, at the peak of their U.K. popularity, they played the Reading Festival alongside Black Oak, Arkansas, Ted Nugent, and AC/DC. Nice. What a lineup, man. I loved seen that one. In 1977, he returns with two great albums. The uh, well, first one's called Making Magic, and the second one's called Putting It Straight. The Putting It Straight album cover is pretty awesome. It shows him he's got his guitar. It's like he's standing in a record executive's office. And he's got the executive sitting there with a cup of coffee and he's like checking it out. And this dude's in there with all his speakers and stuff piled out. He's just rocking it. Very cool album cover. The other one, Making Magic, yeah, not so much. (laughs) so much. It's a weird cover. It's got like he's standing in lava and there's fire and he's reaching up and there's lightning, but he's. He's wearing like a ladies' ballerina shirt. It's very strange. I have to go look
3: this up. I
0: don't know about the covers, but the music pretty awesome. Featuring longtime uh, bassist Mars Cowling and future Iron Maiden drummer Nico McBrain. Really? Yeah, isn't that cool? That's cool. Lots of great songs on these albums, including Rock and Roll Susie, Stevie with Glenn Hughes singing backup vocals on it, a tune called Life in London, Running from the Future, and Speakeasy. featuring Scott Gorham with Thin Lizzy on guitar.
3: I knew the guitar playing. I've heard Pat Travers is a great guitar
0: player. Yeah, oh yeah, totally. Uh, by 1977, due to the UK being engulfed by punk rock. Straightforward rockers like Pat Travers are considered passe. He would head back to North America and enjoy quite a resurgence in popularity there, but he had to get out. That's that's going to be a reoccurring theme today. Punk rock is 1977. They lay a major influence on the way rock and roll is perceived in this year, and it's going to be reoccurring today for sure.
3: uh, Pat Travers' uh, Snorting Whiskey is one of my favorite songs, and uh, also saw him open for Kiss at the Gibson Guitars 100th Anniversary Show in 93 here in Nashville. Nice. Really good live act. Oh, heck yeah. Uh, Sandy Gennaro, another Kiss Connection, played with Blackjack with Bruce Kulik, also plays for drums for Pat Travers nowadays. Kirk McKim, yeah.
0: uh, Yeah, that's right. He uh, played with Dick Wagner. Yeah, played with Dick Wagner and also plays
3: with uh, Pat
0: Travers. Another nice Decibel Geek Connection there. See, it all comes together in 1977. It does.
3: So uh, we're in January. January 10th, the Ramones released their second studio album called Leave Home and it came out on Sire Records. Some of the songs that are well-known off this album include Pinhead and Gimme Gimme Shock Treatment, as far as the heavier tunes. It peaked at 148 on the Billboard 200, way too low. Should have been much higher than that. You know, Joey Ramone starts kind of coming to the forefront a little bit on this album and uh, writing some songs on his own, and my first pick of the show is one of those songs. This is The Ramones with Oh, Oh, I Love Her So. (laughs) bit of that uh, 50s doo punk rock sound
0: yeah the but they just weren't embracing the punk rock in new york the way no. that they were in england in england it was a
1: huge Massive. thing
0: even uh johnny rotten said he didn't really think the ramones were punk rock because they were long-haired dudes with guitars oh, but and they, leather jackets and, but the
3: ramones are hugely responsible for the sex pistols and the clash and a lot of those bands because they went over there and played at the roundhouse and were huge right. and all those bands all those a lot of those bands were formed because of kids that saw the ramones play in london that's true. The Ramones are a big part of the reason punk even exists.
0: I still think the Ramones are way too talented to be considered punk rock. I
3: agree with you that, on that. Speaking of punk rock, man, uh, January
0: 20th, Jimmy Buffett's Changes in Latitude, <laughs> <laughs> Changes in Attitudes, is released in Change the World of Heavy Metal Forever.
3: Well, there's something for everybody, isn't there?
0: Wow. Man. And of course, yeah, I had a, a song called it.
3: Margaritaville on it. we have all heard it a couple that. of times, I'm couple, sure. At least. A couple of million times. My mom is a parent head i'll 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 admit it yeah she loves jimmy buffett
0: i just realized the other day at the famous club here in nashville the exit in the very first person to ever play there Mm -hmm. was jimmy buffett Mm. that was before 77
3: Wow. He goes back a long way.
0: Yeah. You know, it's hard to believe that by 1977, Pink Floyd is 10 albums in. Yeah. And like many other well-established bands from the UK, are being treated totally like dinosaurs in their home country. Yeah. It's because, like we said, of the growing popularity of punk rock. You know, it's kind of a famous story about Johnny Rotten being well-known for his I Hate Pink Floyd t-shirt. <laughs> you know, but Pink Floyd, they took kind of that disrespect to heart and worked extra hard to crank out a masterpiece. And In spite of the complaints from the punk rock community of Pink Floyd being pompous and boring, Animal still goes to number two in the UK and number three in the US. It's a concept album based on capitalism and classes of people, and it's the story of dogs, sheep, and pigs. You know, Pink Floyd would then embark on that massive In the Flesh tour in support of animals, and this is the tour that spawns the neurosis that is necessary to create the following album, 1979's The Wall.
3: Okay, so I'm going to go my next pick. The Runaways put out their second studio album, released on Mercury Records. The album was called Queens of Noise. You know that theme because we've used it. Heck yeah, lots of times. Um, Just recently, too. Yeah, and the uh, this album is a little bit more heavier on the guitar sound than the first debut album. Um, Lita Ford rocks. Oh, I love her. And due to a two-album per... Per year contractual obligation, this album comes out just seven months after the debut, so they had to really crank out a, a new record quickly. Um, That's
0: kind of a theme in '77 too, with young up and coming bands that yeah. record companies are investing money in.
3: Yeah, they want they wanted you to crank out music yeah. so you can go tour behind it. Um, but this track is a little bit more melodic, and it, this is also seen by some as a precursor to the hair metal kind of power ballad type thing. This is the Runaways with Midnight Music.
1: So Toys are Fun Toys? It's slinky, it's slinky, for fun it's a wonderful toy. What walks downstairs alone are in pairs and makes a slinkity sound. A spring, a spring, a marvelous thing, everyone knows it's slinky, it's slinky, it's slinky, for fun it's a wonderful toy. It's fun for a girl and a boy. Slinky is a toy product of James Industries. Nine Lives presents Morris. Look at that pussycat. Reminds me of Louie from the old neighborhood. Sounds like him too. Getting hungry? I'll go watch the baboons. Don't be finicky, there's Nine Lives. Well, if you've seen one baboon. (laughs) Tuna and egg, liver. Nine Lives Liver. Nine Lives. Nutritious foods cats really like. Even Morris. You bring out the animal in me, Nine Lives.
0: All right, you're listening to the Decibel Geek Podcast as we travel back in rock and roll time to the year of 1977. And, you know, we always like to talk about a little bit of everything, not just the music, but we also like to talk about sports. And I know, Chris, you got a sports story for 1977?
3: Yeah, I mean, you're handling most of the sports talk on this one, but Uh uh, this one stuck out to me when I was going through, there's like some cool sites you can find day by day in history type things. Yeah. And on February 1st, 1977, I think this was in Indiana, Hillsdale High School defeats person high High school, two to nothing, in basketball. Oh wow! Two to nothing. So in a basketball game, a whole
0: basketball one game, team and one scored, scored one once.
3: basket. Holy shit! And that was the final score. It's the most boring basketball game of all time. Exactly. Was played
0: 1976. It deserves a
3: mention though for the poor <laughs> bastards that had to sit through that.
0: <laughs> That's a good way to kick off the sports section. Both the schools for the blind. I found out.
3: Oh like, man. <laughs> kind of an experiment
0: okay that is that okay no i'm kidding (laughs) (laughs) okay so on for other sports on january 9th the john madden coached oakland raiders defeated the minnesota vikings in kind of a home game at the rose bowl to become super bowl 11 champions uh, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers beat—they uh, break their 26-game losing streak by defeating the New Orleans Saints in their first ever victory as a franchise. Oh, wow, yeah, they were horrible. 26-game losing streak. That is a record that still stands to this day.
3: Let me, b- before you go on... One of my favorite anecdotes was they had this coach name. I think his name was John McClain, Mm -hmm. who was the coach for all of those losses. And during during that period, one of the reporters asked him after again, he goes, what do you think about the execution of your team? He says, I'm all for it. I'm all for (laughs)
0: it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, they finally broke that streak in 77. Um, Also, 77 is the year the uh, the NFL institutes some new rules, like the Deacon Jones rule, outlawing, outlawing the head slap. Yep. And after 77, you can't, you can't even no longer thrust your hands into a defender's throat or face.
3: <laughs> what fun
0: is that? What kind of rules are these? You also cannot modify your deformed foot to resemble anything other than a real kicker's foot, and your prosthetic must fit inside a standard football shoe. This
3: was the Tom Dempsey thing, right? That's right. The <laughs> the longest field goal ever for years.
0: He had a golf club for a leg. Yeah. Uh, NFL MVP in 1977, Walter Payton. Got to give him props. Yeah, he was the really young then. Portland Trail Blazers are your NBA champs. The legendary Pele retires from soccer. Um, I'm sure the world listeners love it when I call it soccer. Sorry, football. Uh, Kiel Yarborough is the uh, NASCAR champ. Chris Everett's a pretty big deal in sports in tennis in 1977. The NHL is completely dominated by Guy Lafleur and the Montreal Canadiens. A pretty important year for Major League Baseball, as 1977 marks the debut of the Seattle Mariners and the Toronto Blue Jays, that's their inaugural year, Um, as well as a huge World Series pitting Los Angeles versus New York. It was a legendary series that saw Billy Martin's Yankees beat Tommy Lasorda's Dodgers four games to two and these are the games that Reggie Jackson earns the nickname Mr. October for. Yeah, totally. So baseball, huge in 77. Also in sports, on August 30th, superstar Billy Graham defeats <laughs> Bruno Sammartino for the WWF Heavyweight Championship in Baltimore, Maryland. And that's a title that Sammartino had previously held since December of 1973. Hmm. They didn't just swap around them belts like they do nowadays. It meant something back then. Dusty Rhodes is named Pro Wrestling Illustrated Wrestler of the Year. And in the biggest news story of the year, there's rumblings in Fort Myers, Florida. A six foot seven, three hundred pound monster, a masked protege of Hiro Matsuda, that evil bastard, going by the name of Super Destroyer. He made his debut in August, destroying B. Brian Blair.
3: I'm totally in the dark on this one. It's Hulk Hogan. Oh, okay. Super Destroyer.
0: Super Destroyer. So there you go. Those are your uh, sports stories of the year.
3: Huh. Interesting.
0: got whisper. It's Hulk
3: Hogan. Oh, okay. For effect. Don't, don't tell nobody. So we're into February now. Heck yeah. Rock and
0: roll. Back to it.
3: February 4th. Um, I kind of have to mention this story. It was a huge album that year. Fleetwood Mac's Rumors comes out.
0: Okay, so we'll hold off on the rock and roll for a moment <laughs> while we talk about Fleetwood Mac.
3: And uh talk about tits. Uh, February 8th, Hustler publisher Larry Flynn is sentenced on obscenity charges. Yeah, that and, was uh, big deal back then, all that. And then a monumentous event... That's probably a word I just created. February 18th, <laughs> KISS plays their first concert at Madison Square Garden in New York City.
0: Yeah, the conquering heroes return home. And I, I just got a, a funny feeling that KISS is going to be a recurring theme here through 1977.
3: Surely not on our show. <laughs>
0: And surely not in 1977,
3: right? Yeah, yeah, they were they were nobodies back then, right?
0: Jeez, but there's all kinds of rock and roll going on. We will most definitely get to the kiss. There's plenty of, of kiss to talk about in
3: 1977. On part one and two. Heck yeah. All right, so uh, my next one, I don't have a ton of info on it. I love it. But, um, but theirs is a good song. A Cheap Trick puts out their self-titled debut album on February 26th on Epic Records, produced by Jack Douglas and, you know, Pink... Uh, Pink Floyd. Cheap Trick is known for, you know, kind of poppy numbers and upbeat stuff. Right. But this album, and, you know, and they Tom Werman produced a lot of their other stuff. But this album is kind of a a different animal because Jack Douglas produced it. And if you know Jack Douglas from that period, he was working with Aerosmith a lot. Right. So big into gritty production, you know, raw sounding guitars, more like their live show at the time. And also a lot of heavy subject matter on this album. Totally. Really, the ballad of TV violence and arcade.
0: Really love this album. It's
3: a fantastic album. And this is a cool kind of deep cut from the album. This is Cheap Trick with Hot Love.
0: They were discovered in Wisconsin, you know, and they said, you got to sign these. They told Tom Werner, you got to sign these guys. They're going to be great, you know, and they weren't great at first, you know. In retrospect, you look at those early Cheap Trick albums, they're really, really good, but Mm -hmm. at the time, it wasn't really happening for them.
3: Right. Oh, they've always been kind of a... They're like the band that most people like to say should have been much bigger than they really were. You know? Yeah, like, totally.
0: And, I agree with that.
3: All right. The, also, this is another. You know, Cheap Tricks on their way in. And I'm going to talk about a band that was on their way out for tragic reasons. Yeah. T-Rex puts out an album called Dandy in the Underworld on March 11th. It's their 12th and their final studio album released on EMI Records reaches number 26 in the UK charts it's received favorably by critics and uh mark i mean it's really a mark bolan solo album cuz it's not the same lineup as he had through most of those years right um but he seemed more focused as he uh, also did a spring tour with the damned at the time mark was hitching his wagon onto the punk rock scene at the time not so much with his music but he was kind of one of those if you can't beat them join them type types where He's like I see this is taking over so I'm going to, you know, make inroads with these guys and a lot of the punk rock bands really respected him for I guess you would say slumming with the punk rock bands. Like he, oh, would, yeah, he would play cause shows with them because he's a more of a glam rocker,
0: right? Because you wouldn't think what Mark Bolin and T Rex did would that would the punk rockers should have shit all over that. I mean, you think he, about yeah, all the he, other bands they cracked right. on.
3: But they liked he, him because he would hang out with those guys. Wow!
0: And um, he bought the drugs. Yeah, and I guess
3: so. Up. Well, yeah, maybe that was the common <laughs> thread. The money, because there was drugs going on. Um, but Mark and his girlfriend Gloria Jones spent the evening of September fifteenth of seventy seven drinking at the Speakeasy and then. Dining Dining at Morton's Club on Berkeley Square in Mayfair in central London. While driving home early in the morning of September 16th, Jones crashed Boland's mini purple GT into a tree. Damn. And uh, after failing to negotiate a small humpback bridge near Gypsy Lane on Queens, I don't know, somewhere in southwest London, a few miles from his house, while he, uh, Jones was severely injured, Boland was killed in the crash two weeks before his 30th birthday. That sucks. So, uh, from the final album that Mark Boland put out while he was alive to, in uh, 1977, this is T Rex with the title track Dandy in the Underworld. listening to to that song uh, knowing what would happen to him just a few months later you know.
0: yeah that's crazy man big loss for rock and roll in 77 and right he was there. a
3: very influential front man like, he oh, influenced yeah. a lot of people that came after him
0: shoot yeah, yeah. and wrote some awesome songs in his time
3: uh, absolutely Okay, so, uh, yeah, May 13th is a kind of an important date for those of us that, you know, have mics to our faces. Howard Stern begins broadcasting at WRNW in Briarcliff Manor, New York.
0: That's awesome, man. I love Howard Stern. That's I know awesome. everybody that has, like you say, is doing a podcast or working on, at a radio station has got to give the love and respect to Howard Stern because he is one of the most genius and oh. unique on-air entertainers that the world has ever seen you Both know a lot
3: of rules to uh give everybody the way that we do things now
0: I heck mean, yeah howard stern we salute you well, yeah, he
3: was uh if you've seen the movie private parts or read the book you know that he was not very polished back in 1977 he's pretty much a nerd on the microphone
0: yeah but everybody's got to start somewhere he Started somewhere. <laughs> so i'm glad he did in 1977 you know by 1977 acdc was massively popular in australia they had released four studio albums and toured in the Europe and in the UK, but they had never even played in the United States. By 77, that's crazy. In 76, the U.S. Division of Atlantic Records rejected an American release of Dirty Deeds Done Dirt Cheap. Hmm. They just weren't having it. They didn't see the value of ACDC. The
3: intelligence of record
0: companies. Right. When they returned with Let There Be Rock, they had a chip on their shoulder against punk rock uprising in europe and the softcore dominated airwaves of the US because there was a whole lot of that going on in the 70s. So they decided to take the guitars into overdrive and make the band sound as just as a whole more explosive and they delivered the goods with songs like Problem Child, Hell Ain't a Bad Place to Be, Let There Be Rock, Overdose, and Whole Lotta Rosie.
1: Exactly small. Phone 23956. You can say she got it.
0: You know, and it's kind of funny to me how much influence the English punk rock scene really had on what was going on in 1977, you know, but to push ACDC to deliver their heaviest album up to date, you know, and you would think punk rock purists would have spit on a band like ACDC, but they actually respected them. Yeah. Kind of like Mark Bolin, you know, they saw him as a hardworking, you know, underclass kind of a band. Yeah. And even though they were a million times more talented than the punk rock bands, they still had that attitude.
3: There's a I don't I saw it on YouTube and I don't know what club it is. I know it's them playing this club in London, and and it was around this time, maybe a little earlier. But they're on stage and this is like a little. This place couldn't hold no more than two hundred people. Yeah, as you know, them with Bon Scott and there's just the energy. You could feel the energy through the fucking YouTube video. I mean, it's just like you can't you can't manufacture that no it, you either sure it's can't. there or it's not and you know, and that's why that era anybody, is incredible
0: you got to respect it because they came from nothing they almost didn't make it i mean here and even at this point in 77 they're far from being the top band in, oh, sure. in the world you yeah, know which eventually kind of they would get there but yeah they're still struggling right now but you know like many bands we'll see throughout 1977 Don't worry about ACDC. This punk rock thing will fade away shortly, (laughs) and they will be up
3: on top where they belong in the 80s. That's true. So we go into April of 1977. uh, News in April. uh, April 22nd, the aforementioned Pink Floyd opens their North American Leg of Their Animals tour in Miami, Florida. Uh, Big, big tour. Um, so, um, for my next pick, I want to come out with a, uh, this is a little bit more of a, of a gem that some people may not know about. There was a band called Detective that put out a self-titled album in April of that year.
0: I think I recognize Detective. Is there some sort of kiss connection going on here that we should know about? There
3: is, and I've got a a few things I want to say about Detective because it's an interesting story. Um, they, uh they included vocalist Michael Debar, who you've seen in movies and TV shows and also front of the power station on tour. Yeah. And, uh, you know, he's, uh, He's been a part of pop culture for years. He's oh, still totally. ra- he actually hosts his own podcast now.
0: Yeah, he's a famous dude. I like him.
3: And uh really cool guy. And I posted a clip on my Facebook page of uh, he appears as a guest on the uh, WKRP in Cincinnati episode where he's in a punk rock band called Scum of the Earth. Oh, wow. And it's it's a classic episode. So, That's cool. I'll yeah, check that out. It's really funny. And um, But yeah, the Kiss connection to Detective is... This album came out in 77. About a year before that, when Kiss was doing the demo sessions for the the Destroyer album, there was, I don't remember who wrote the song, but there was this group of songwriters that put together a song called Ain't None of Your Business okay. that Bob Ezrin brought into the studio wanting Peter Chris to sing. Yeah, And Kiss demos the song, and you can find it in bootleg circles. I think I've heard that. Well, on their se- on Detective's second album that would come out in seventy eight, they actually did a full on recording of that song. I think I even may have played it on that seventy eight year in review, if I'm remembering right.
0: Or maybe the Kiss ba- uh, demos thing. We Possibly, did. yeah. Possibly,
3: but um. So that's the Kiss connection there. And of course, Michael Barr is, you know, he's weaved in and in and out of uh, Kiss circles through years. He also appears on Gene Simmons' solo album in seventy eight. Yeah. He's at the beginning of I can't remember what's maybe it was "See You in Your Dreams." He's the one that goes. <laughs> At the very beginning of the song But anyway, also... the, the debut album in '77 was produced by Detective Andy Johns and Jimmy Robinson. Um, they they did go into the studio in '78 with producer Tom Dowd to record their third album. And while the first two albums were on Led Zeppelin's Swan Song label, and you'll hear in the song that you're about to hear, you'll hear the Zeppelin influence. Uh, Atlantic took over the band for their third release. Atlantic wanted a single from the band. Tom Dowd brought in a song from an then unknown singer songwriter named John Cougar called "I Need a Lover." You know that song. Oh, yeah. Um, according that, to Monarch... That won't drive me crazy. Yep. According to Monarch, they really didn't want to record it, but they did. It remains unreleased to this day, along with a couple other re- original songs. Wow. Monarch went on to say that the members of Detective were moving on in d- different directions, and the group decided to disband. That's one of those what-if things, because I Need a Lover was a pretty big hit for John Cougar Mellencamp. Yeah, what if they had released they it first? They could have been from that. You never know. That's tough sometimes, you know? It's like kissing time. It could have been huge. Yeah. (laughs) But check out the uh, Zeppelin influence in this. This is Detective from 1977 with a song called Grip Reaper. jimmy page guitar sound for you
0: yeah nothing wrong with that it works in 77 absolutely all right so i guess it brings us up we can't ignore it any further so i gotta ask what actually made the clash punk rock i mean it wasn't their sound because their sound was a mix of like guitar rock with some white english guy reggae
3: well that they became that i mean their the first album i hear a lot of ramones wannabe stuff personally. yeah
0: yeah, because the guitars are thick on it. I always, you know, I'm not the biggest Clash fan in the world. You know? Not either. To me, it's like they're anti what they said they were against. They were against like pretentious kind of stuff. And they became but man. to me, they kind of seem pretentious. But, you know, I think what made the Clash was pretty much the scene that they came up in. And the fact that they were way different than anything else out there. And there were... You know There were way more rock bands in the late 70s tackling large piles of cocaine and other (laughs) immortal pleasures, but not too many of them were tackling issues like racism and poverty and war and corrupt governments and other injustices in their music. So by 1976, the UK punk movement was in full swing and the major labels, they're just doing what they do. They're out there looking for the next big thing. Well, if this is popular, then we have to find something just like that. And wham, right in front of their very eyes there's something they can monetize and it's the clash so with only about 30 some gigs under their belts they sign a really lucrative recording contract with cbs records and in 1977 they released their self-titled debut only band that matters right uh, whatever. <laughs> i don't know about all that but you know they do rock and they are too important part of rock history to not include them in 1977 year I've review always
3: viewed the clashes they're okay i don't i don't see the genius that some people do it
0: was just i think they were it was right time right place with those guys yeah pretty and the much. fact that they weren't singing about you know their penises and innuendos and things like that that other bands like kiss and zeppelin and all these bands were doing you know that was the thing and it was just something different it was like the 90s you know when that all changed but the the alternative thing actually lasted a little while
3: i'll take squeeze my lemon till the juice runs down my leg over riot any day (laughs) Just personal preference, though. No, it is what it is. Yeah. All right. So, uh, got to include it. Also released in April, a band called The Sweet released Off the Record. This was their fifth album released on RCA Records, formed in 1968 in England, mostly known for the songs Fox on the Run and Love is Like Oxygen. Um, in america but I bet they you that
0: they were big into the uk punk scene right oh, those no. guys love sweet oh
3: yeah <laughs> but they were very big overseas in europe i mean they and had a long career over there um they were basically pioneers of glam rock you know they yeah. they the sweet is i don't i don't think they should be uh, underestimated i think they're a really good band totally um and this is a cool track from off the record this is a song called fever of love And I know, uh, you know, UK punk rockers probably were sickened by that type of stuff. But, sure. uh, you know, if you're sickened by guys that know how to play their instruments, then sorry. I know the costumes right. were a little goofy, but yeah. but yeah.
0: yeah, and the songs were, you know, kind of fluffy at times. I like You it. know, but the, the suite had some great stuff.
3: Absolutely. I love you know, power pop. Yeah, and that
0: definitely fits that. Here's something totally different from that. 1977 was a big year for judas priest after releasing two critically but not really financially successful releases judas priest is signed by cbs records and they begin work on sin after sin with deep purple bassist roger glover in charge of production now when he gets there he finds the band has a pretty strong idea of how they want the album to sound and are pretty much unwavering to any of his suggestions so he says well whatever you know <laughs> do it yeah, I'll leave you're, you're you know? me anyway <laughs> so he, st- he leaves You know, So now they're a great band, but they're not really record producers. So once they piddle away enough time with only a week left, they go back to him and say, please come back and help us finish this record. We can't do it on our own. So he comes back, and the result is what I think many Judas Priest fans would call the first definitive Judas Priest album to take them to where they were and what they would become and where they discover what they're really capable of. Starbreaker, Sinner, a Rockdale cover of Joan Baez's "Diamonds and Rust." Love that yeah, song. it's
3: probably my favorite cover of all time.
0: Overall, it's a pretty damn good album. It's a great it, album. It, it basically introduces double bass drumming and a more aggressive metal sound that Judas Priest would become famous for. And this is the launching pad for all the greatness that Judas Priest would go on to deliver in their career. This is the the rocket first taken off for Judas Priest in mm-hmm. 1977. Awesome!
3: You're really hearing the the birth of the new wave of British heavy metal.
0: Totally, that, you're going to hear album. more of that too. It that's because that's what falls in right behind punk yeah when punk is gone and people realize wait a minute here's here's some bands that have a whole lot of punk rock attitude but can actually really play all their instruments really really good that's where that comes in
1: with
3: no jewelry stuck so on faces.
0: don't feel bad for bands like this that are struggling right now because they're going to persevere every one of these bands are going to persevere
3: uh another hot story from 1977 in april 26 a place called studio 54 opens up in new york city heck yeah it was a uh Well, the party capital of the world at that point. Without any,
0: without no Studio 54, there wouldn't be no I Was Made for Loving You. Baby. (sighs) Maybe
3: that's not a good thing. (laughs) But yeah, it's undeniable that place has a a true history in pop culture.
0: Oh, it totally does. Can you imagine? That'd be a thing if we really did have a time machine, we're going back to 1977. We'd have to at least party there one night.
3: I'd get a nice nose full of that place. Heck yeah,
0: take Ace Fraley and have him show us around.
3: You heard that story about Ace Fraley running into uh, Keith Richards at Studio 54?
0: Yeah, and Keith Richards didn't know who he was.
3: And somebody says, says, hey, Keith, this is Ace from KISS. Or or like Ace introduces himself and then later Ted Nugent walks by and Keith goes, oh, hey, Ted, this is Ace from Kicks." And he goes, no, Keith Kiss. He goes, ah, Kiss, Kicks, same thing.
0: Ah. (laughs) Jeez. What do you expect? He wasn't standing there with a smoking guitar and his full get-up on. It was tough for Kiss.
3: It was. Uh, Another artist that was having a tough time in 1977 was Alice Cooper, who put out the Lace and Whiskey album on April 29th. Um, It was his 10th studio album released on Warner Brothers Records, of course produced by Bob Ezrin. Uh, This album has not is not well embraced by the, the diehard Alice Cooper fans. Uh-uh. And probably because it's a concept album based around a comic private eye character that Alice came up with called Maurice Escargot.
0: And it's hard to find nowadays.
3: Yeah, and uh, it's based on his love for Inspector Clouseau of the Pink Panther. The Alice and, uh,
0: Cooper was crazy.
3: Yeah, and also elements of 40s and 50s movies are portrayed throughout the album. It, it does peak at number 42 on the album, and mostly because of uh, the song You and Me, which was a big power ballad at the time. Yeah. But uh, there's a song on this album that most Alice Cooper fans think is the absolute worst thing he's ever done. And I'm not going to play it, but it's a song <laughs> called No More Love at Your Convenience. It's basically an Alice Cooper disco song. Wow. I kind of like it, but it's it's I can see why people don't.
0: Alice Cooper was crazy.
1: Back then, He'd yeah, do anything,
3: and it was after the completion of the uh, tour for this album in '77 that he checked into a New York based sanitarium for his first treatment for alcoholism because he had things had just gotten too far. Well, and, apparently, uh, <laughs> this song, like many apparently others so. written on the album by Alice Cooper, uh, Bob Ezra, and Dick Wagner, this is Alice Cooper with a religious song called My God.
1: It's Kenner's Star Wars action figures, each sold separately. I got you now, Ben Kenobi. With R2-D2 and C-3PO, there's even Chewbacca and Han Solo. Someone's coming, Chewie. Who's there? It's Princess Leia and Luke Skywalker. Now I know the Force is with us. Darth Vader, R2-D2, C-3PO and other Kenner's Star Wars action figures, each sold separately with Pink Floyd, Friday, April 22nd, 8 p.m. at the Miami Baseball Stadium. Tickets $10 in advance, $12 in the show on sale now. Sid's East and West Lauderdale. Records Unlimited, 163rd Hollywood, Tateville, Hialeah, and the Gables, All Jeans, etc. Fans Record, Den Delray. Records Unlimited, South Miami, and Rock of Ages in Boca. Pink Floyd, April 22nd, Friday night, 8 p.m. A cellar door. You're present. rich girl, and you're gone too far, cause you know it don't matter anyway you can rely on the old man's money you can rely on the old man's money it's a bitch girl but it's gone too far because you know it don't matter anyway say money money won't get you too far get you
0: too far all right you're listening to the decibel geek podcast as we continue our adventure into 1977 so far so good Except for maybe that little clip just there. Well, that's not.
3: As with tradition with doing these year in review shows, <laughs> I try to, for the break music, I try to use some of the stuff that was really big on the Billboard charts right. that we wouldn't normally play. So that's Rich Girl by Holland Oates. You all know that song. Sure. It's just a little something
0: to bring you back down to earth. So we're, we're talking about all these amazing bands <laughs> well, that were coming out with music in 1977 to remind you that. It wasn't all Kiss and Alice Cooper, you know, and and great stuff like that.
3: I like some of their stuff. That was number one in America the first week of April of that year. So um, some other stuff we should talk about. We want to touch on movies in 1977. Heck
0: yeah, we always like to talk about all the other stuff going on in 77. And I guess what, you know, the greatest movie ever released...
3: Well, we'll get to that. Let's do the top five.
0: Okay, because everybody knows what the greatest movie ever released was, and they know it's 1977, but we'll get there.
3: It was Pumping Iron with Arnold (laughs) Schwarzenegger. Obviously. It was released in 77. Yeah. Uh, Coming in at number five with $94 million at the box office, Saturday Night Fever. Yeah, that disco was huge. Was on top at the
0: totally top. was. That was like the b- beginning because the movie, I think, made the genre more than anything. Oh,
3: sure. It made it completely take it's off. It's
0: like, oh, look at that movie. That's what disco is. That's what we have to emulate. It's already laid all out in front of us. All we got to do is dress it and do it. That's
3: when my parents started going to discos, too. Oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> I remember my dad and mommy said, oh, we used to love going to the disco. Yeah. Uh, I bet. You know, um, it's all in fun, I guess. Number four at $102 million was The Goodbye Girl.
0: I don't know a whole lot. About I think
3: that. was a Barbra Streisand movie, I think. I could be wrong. Uh, the top three, though, are amazing. Uh, number three, with $116 million, was Close Encounters of the Third Kind.
0: Yeah, that's an all time classic. I still love that movie. It's a great movie.
3: Uh, number two, $126 million, Smokey and the Bandit.
0: One of my all time favorites.
3: True cinema.
0: Such an iconic film. You know, I don't.
3: You some bitch.
0: Yeah, if it wasn't for the greatest movie of all time, Smokey and the Bandit would most definitely be number one.
3: So number one, no surprise, three hundred and seven million dollars at the box office, Star Wars.
0: The greatest of them all to set off the series that would encapsulate all our lives you know it would have every movie you look back on every part you know you remember parts of your own childhood and then you remember parts of your child's childhood you know? and now you're gonna you know oh my god we got grandkids coming we got to take them to the new star Shut wars your movies fucking mouth you're a
1: teenager.
3: <laughs> Oh. It's, it's a beautiful thing, either way you
1: look yeah, at
0: it. No so, for yeah, that. you know, um, the force is death definitely with us all today. Some other
3: the, notable movies that were released, least to me, uh, Eraserhead came out. One of the weirdest movies you'll ever watch. Huh? Have you ever see no, Eraserhead? I don't think so. I have to get you a copy of that. David Lynch is one of his first movies. The Exorcist 2 comes out. Definitely yeah. a letdown after the debut.
0: Oh, man, totally.
3: High Anxiety, the Mel Brooks movie. Uh, Kentucky Fried movie, which is a great movie. Hmm. Oh, God. Oh, George yeah, Burns.
0: George Burns. That guy was awesome. Pete, I love uh, George Burns. Pete's
3: Dragon came out that year. I remember that. And Slapshot also came out that Slapshot.
0: year. Slapshot. I think if it wasn't for Star Wars and Smoking the Bandit and Close Encounters, I'd have to give it to Slapshot.
3: It was a funny movie. Yeah,
0: it should have been up there in the greatest.
3: And uh not bad. Good movies. Yeah, so we gotta move into May now.
0: All right, we've covered a lot of great rock and roll already, but we've got a long ways to go because 1977 was just jam-packed with awesome stuff. I got a nice clump of things right here to tell you about. 1977 was a strange year for Heart. Their previous year had been uh The previous year, they'd released their successful debut album on a small record label called Mushroom Records based in Vancouver. They were working on their follow-up album, Magazine, when Dreamboat Annie sold a million copies. Mm -hmm. So Mushroom Records took out a full-page celebratory ad in Rolling Stone magazine with a sexy picture of the girls and an innuendo-laden caption that says, It was only our first time. (laughs) Improving even the media was stupid back in 1977, they ran with the story that not only were the Wilson sisters sisters, but they were also lovers.
2: Wow. dumbasses!
0: asses.
3: Incest in the 70s.
0: Yeah, this causes a huge rift between the band and their small label. And plus now CBS is now interested in signing them because they just sold a million records. And Hart was totally ready to go after all that. And so let the legal battle begin mushroom quickly releases an unfinished version of magazine while the band goes to work on their major label de- debut little queen ann and nancy are pretty pissed off about the whole ordeal and you know what they say about a woman's scorn it creates iconic angry ass music Uh, Little Queen off there, Dream of the Archer, Kick It Out. That's a great song. This is a great era for the band sound, and I think it reminds me of how truly Heart is a direct descendant of Led Zeppelin.
3: Oh, totally. Yeah, they're heavily influenced by Zeppelin and. You know, we a lot of people have heard Barracuda for years on the radio, and it, you kind of numb yourself out to it. But such a great song! If you song. listen to it with fresh ears, I mean, the guitar playing on that song is fucking angry guitar playing. Yeah, you know, oh it's, man, it's, it's a great. fantastic riff. Especially, and it's very ahead of its time too.
0: It kind of sucks when something so good gets overplayed to where you kind of don't like it. But then when you listen, like you say, you listen to it with fresh ears, that's amazing. You it's know? a great song, and this was a good time for them. You know, Mushroom Records would. They'd have to pull their half-assed version of magazine off the shelves, and the band was free to sign with greener pastures, but they still owed the old label a complete version of magazine. So with an officer appointed to stand guard in the event that the band might try to erase the master tapes, (laughs) Hart spends about a week finishing up magazine, which would be released the following year by the old record label, freeing them to go on and you know what they did they had their ups and downs since then but i don't know how
3: many times that's happened where if a band has actually gone in and wiped stuff clean just of being just pissed off yeah ever.
0: screw you guys you know they'd be like oh we hate all the songs that you like but we love these ones you'd be like oh yeah oops yeah <laughs> let
3: me hit this well, delete button
0: that can never be replicated right man what else do we got going on in 1977 you know what's going on in 1977 uncle ted is going on in 1977 ted nugent has been on an incredible role since dropping the amboy duke's name signing with epic Rec- records and going solo in 1975 now i think people forget just to what extent ted nugent owned the mid to late 70s he released one album per year from 1975 to 1980 never missed consistency, that's number one with Ted his self-titled debut in 1976 follow-up Free For All both went double platinum and in 1977 the Nuge drops his peak album Cat Scratch Fever it's packed full of rocking tunes including that iconic title track you know, it's famous. So many people have done awesome covers of it. Mm-hmm. You hear it all the time. Cat Scratch Fever. You also hear on that one, Death by Misadventure, Sweet Sally, Live It Up, and who could forget that timeless classic, <laughs> Wang Dang, Sweet Poon Tang. He's the only guy to have the cojones to put the word poontang right in the title of the song.
3: Yeah, I suggested that be our wedding song, and it was quickly next.
0: <laughs> but it's the romantic song, most romantic of all time. I
3: love my wife, and I'm still mad about that. <laughs>
0: Yeah, Scratch Fever goes triple platinum. And uh, the funny thing is, is, when Ted dropped the Amboy name, it was agree- originally agreed by all members of the band that they be called the Ted Nugent Band, because mm-hmm. they're a band. Uh, the band found out that they were going to only be known as Ted Nugent when the debut album comes out. Hey. But, you know, Ted writes most of the songs, and he did have the star power and the established name, but you cannot discount the cre- the uh, contributions of drummer and producer, the late Cliff Davies, mm-hmm. bassist Rob Grange, and, of course, Derek St. Holmes, who played guitar and, you know, believe it or not, was the lead vocal- vocalist on probably most of your favorite Ted that's, Nugent songs. He's one of the unsung heroes of rock and roll. You don't realize it. That's Derek St. Holmes singing that stuff. Yep. At any rate, in 1977... The Nuge is huge, especially in the United States and Canada. Not real sure how they feel about him in the U.K., in Europe. I don't know.
3: Well, he wasn't spouting <laughs> off anything political back then, so I'm sure he's pretty if he universally had, liked. If
0: he had, they would have loved him in the U.K.
3: Back then, his controversy was he liked uh, very underage girls.
0: And to rock and roll. Yeah. But didn't they all back then? Yeah. That's all they wanted to do was rock and roll and have when some Ted fun. Ted saw
3: you coming out of school that day.
0: <laughs> <laughs> all right, and so Ronno and for me... You know, and this was something I found interesting while we were doing the homework for this. And I think it's kind of a common misconception that the real reason UFO isn't as well known today as people think they should have is because they were big in Europe and never really caught on in North America. But I found out that's not really the case, because in the 70s, they're a good example of another UK hard rock band that is way more popular in the United States than they are in their own homeland. In fact, by 1977, UFO had released five studio albums, and they had all failed to even chart in the UK. And although they had a kind of a modest following in the US, they never had a chart uh, album chart higher than 71 on the US album charts. So... They're not it's one of them things where they're not really big there they're not kind of really big everywhere. here they're kind of floating in between it's a, it's weird but in 1977 that all kind of changed with the release of Lights Out would go all the way to number 23 on the U.S. album charts. That's not bad for 1977, and believe it or not, they would actually even chart in the U.K., finally, at number 54. And this would be the peak of UFO's success in America. And uh, more important than album sales and chart certifications, I think, in this instance, is the influence on the young people listening to this and plotting a new wave of British heavy metal. True. You know, after punk rocks, mass popularity fades away. The people in England declare, we loved UFO all along. We totally did. We're with them.
3: Interesting about uh, UFO, because that ties into the next news story that I got to mention, which is... You know, UFO stands for unidentified flying object, you know, mysterious, strange. Right. That would also apply to their guitarist back then, Michael Schenker. Yeah. Who had very unpredictable behavior in that year. Oh, and, totally. Uh, on June 12th, at a after a UFO concert at the Roundhouse in London, which I mentioned about the Ramones playing out earlier, he just vanishes. He just oh, leaves. Yeah. He just totally splits. That's a crazy story. It's just, he just walks away. I don't know if he even knows where he went. I don't know. Maybe he went on a UFO.
0: It seems like it. That would make total sense. <laughs> and
3: he's replaced for several months by Paul Chapman, who would come back to the band later on. Also, and then
0: all of a sudden thing. one day there he was. There he like, w- where have you been? What do you mean? You you've been gone for two years. We got this other guitar player. I've been. What do you mean? I was only gone for a minute. My zipper got Just stuck. Just went to the
1: bathroom. <laughs>
3: It is interesting uh, uh, of note on uh, June also on June 12th of 1977 the Supremes performed their last show ever in London before officially disbanding. I had no wow. idea that they were even together that long.
0: They lasted.
3: Until 77. I had no idea. Is
0: this about the time, or is it's a little bit later on that Gene dates Diana Ross, right?
3: Yeah, that was around 79, 80.
0: So she retired and took some time to get ready to date the demon. She was preparing preparing
3: for the tongue. (laughs) Uh, Also, on June 20th, uh, Grateful Dead drummer Mickey Hart drives his Porsche over the edge of a canyon, suffering multiple broken bones but surviving as a tree breaks his fall. Dang.
0: That's not very hippie like.
3: You know that God's got more plans for you than that if a tree breaks your fall after falling off a canyon.
0: Nice Porsche jerk.
3: It's pretty crazy. And then he had the uh, unceremonious problem of having to play in the Grateful Dead for years and years.
0: Right, later. so he'd already paid his penance.
3: I'm sorry, there will never be a heavier side of the Grateful Dead episode of this show. I never. No, I can't. That would be the last. The the one before that would be the last one featuring me. Right. <laughs> also, uh, in June 22nd, big news there. Uh, Kiss are elected the most popular band in America by the Gallup poll.
0: Hell yeah, man! If you you gotta love 1977 for that more than anything, and this is the reason why we were so excited about doing 1977 is because 1977 is the year of kiss and star wars and star wars how much cooler does it get than that peanut butter and jelly it was a great time to be two years old (laughs) <laughs>
3: yeah, it was a great time for me to be one year old. I remember it well. I took I remember, a shit on. I remember all this
0: stuff. Yeah. Totally do.
3: But uh, um, so uh, you know, we're going to round out the show with Kiss, and uh, they put out Love Gun on June thirtieth. Yes, their, one of the greatest albums of all freaking time. Their sixth studio album released on Casablanca Records, certified platinum upon release, went on to sell four million. Um, the, this song that I'm about to play, to round things out, was written solely by Paul Stanley. It is said to have been influenced by Deep Purple song, Burn. And uh, this is also the first Kiss song I ever heard live in person when I saw them in 1990, so it means a lot to me.
0: I love this album so much.
3: That's uh, January through June, and uh, we'll see you next week. This is Kiss with I Stole Your Love. Have a good one.
0: See you.